My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Angling magazines and books published back in the 1950s and 1960s look very different to the ones we see on our bookshelves today in 2014. They were still illustrated, albeit sparingly, mainly with black and white photographs. But when it came to colour illustration, the fashion of the time was to employ artists, preferably with an angling background, and therefore a genuine feel for what it was they were aiming to put across. Names which immediately spring to mind include Bernard Venables, David Carl Forbes, and the man I'm linking up with here today, Keith Linsell. In our preamble before the voice recorder was switched on, you describe yourself and the path your angling illustrating would ultimately take as being lucky, though events didn't necessarily always appear to be heading that way initially. What was it then, from the raft of notes I know you've prepared, that catalyzed your earliest years and guided you forward along the career path that you would ultimately take? I grew up on the eastern extremities of Essex at Manor Park, and ten minutes' walk away was the southern tip of Epping Forest. The area included Wonsley Park, Bushwood, the City of London Cemetery, and Wonsley Flats, uh, just a little to the north with the extensive remnants of Epping Forest. There were lakes and ponds on Wonsley Flats and in Wonsley Park. There was also a bridle path which ran around the south and eastern borders of the cemetery. The Aldersbrook, an offshoot of the river roading, ran alongside most of that pathway. I'd fished with sticklebats early on in one of the ponds in Wonsley Park, and my father took me fishing in one of the lakes there when I was six. This area then, with its water, forest and open green spaces, was to have a huge influence on me and later on my work as an artist. My friends and I would fish Aldersbrook, Alexander Lake on Wonsley Flats and the lakes in Wonsley Park, wander and explore the woods and open areas to our heart's content, and later my kid brother Tony and I would go out on a bus and head north to Epping Forest and other places on the local map that were coloured green. We were both interested in natural history, and I'm afraid that at that age and time, finding birds' nests and taking the old egg home to study. It was more for the excitement of finding the nest and identifying the bird species than to collect eggs. We had a museum of natural history in our father's large garden shed. We had owl pellets and their contents, various bird skulls, we had birds' nests, and the skulls we had found and cleaned ourselves, that means uh, to the uninitiated, sort of boiling them very gently, not too much because delicate bird skulls sometimes collapse and go a bit rubbery if they're boiled too much. And we also brought home various bits and bobs and, and parts of animals and birds that we'd found that were roadkills, wings of different birds showing feather arrangement and plumage, small stuffed rodents, dried wild flowers and anything else we wanted to learn about and was portable. And from somewhere I had obtained the head of a golden eagle with marbles for eyes. By the time I was in my mid-teens, I was not only a hard-bitten angler, but a fairly serious birdwatcher. I would cycle to fish in the Dagnum and Raynham area, just generally exploring. And of course, as I fished, so I was watching everything that flew, swam or scuttled around me. And I wanted to know the names of all of them. I used to get up before dawn to be in Wonsley Park early to watch the rabbits and the foxes. At that time, I would be about 13 or 14 years old, and I was a junior member of the RSPB. 
I applied in person to the superintendent of the City of London Cemetery at his office in the large Gothic building opposite the main gate for a permit to watch birds and generally be free to take notice of any wildlife that took my fancy. I was informed by the superintendent that nobody else had asked for such a thing, but said how very interesting it was, and he gave me a handwritten permit. Yes, OK, it's a cemetery, but consists of more than 200 acres of beautiful landscape Victorian parkland with several miles of roads and pathways in stunning surroundings, and I had permission to legally dawdle at my leisure. Ever since I learned to hold a pencil, I had sketched, and by this time I had quite a collection of sketch pads and odd bits of paper filled with drawings of bird life and fishes, not yet suitable for publication, but drawn with vigour and enthusiasm. There was a deep-seated need to record on paper what I had seen while fishing, together with the necessity of teaching myself to draw properly, to observe, think, draw and recognise continually where I needed to improve. At school I was always top of art, but I needed to get better. I showed people only the pieces I was satisfied with. My aim, and such is life, was to be satisfied with everything I did. I started painting with watercolour. Untutored, rather garish and crudely done were my early attempts, but over the years I improved and started to develop my own techniques and style. 1967, this is about Carr's Gun Room at Austin Reed in Regent Street, London. I heard about the vacancy through the grapevine. Due to my work history, I got the job. Wing Commander S.J. Carr rented a room on the first floor of Austin Reed in Regent Street, London, and wanted someone to manage the gun room. We sold guns, fishing rods, deer stalking on Scottish estates, and salmon fishing in Scandinavia. Wing Commander Carr had a long history in the RAF. He started very young in the Royal Flying Corps in the First World War, and then on into the RAF. At the time I knew him, he was a state manager for Nebworth Estates, to be known better in later years as a pop concert venue. He came to the office two days a week. The rest of the time I held the fort together with our secretary, Heather. He often had lunch with his old friend Robert Graves, the poet and writer, who used to stay at the Ritz Hotel when in London. I remember finding live ammunition in the drawer of the office desk I used. 0.45 and 9mm bullets rattled around among the A4 sheets and paper clips and salmon flies. Wing Commander Carr was probably a little older than the century. He had a bristling moustache and a hawk nose. He was a warrior and a straight-down-the-line English gentleman with a reserve manner. He wore immaculate dark pinstripe suits and a bowler hat and was a pleasure to know. The only thing I found rather irksome was that he insisted that I call him Winko when we were with clients. This, after all, was 1967 and I think the line had been crossed about seven years earlier. Just to put you in the background, Nazing Lake in the mid-1960s was the home to a huge number of very large perch. And when I was working in Peaks of Grays Inn Road, the chat over the counter from members of that particular club, they were nice friendly chaps. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I became a member of that club and I was lucky enough to be there when all these big fish were coming out. And I eventually designed a perch rod Mark One, which was designed to throw small jointed lures a good distance from crowded and overgrown banks. And on my first cast, with that new rod, I caught a four-pound perch. John Piper, feature writer for Angler's Mail, 
lived in Bournemouth, I believe. I saw him several times fishing at Nazing in company with others from Angler's Mouth, John Ingham, the editor, and Jerry Hughes, to name but a few. John Piper used to wear gloves when he fished there. They were peppermint green. Why he wore them I don't know, nor do I know what they were made of. They had the appearance of washing up gloves. Perhaps he had a skin condition, or found he could handle lobworms better using them. It's always puzzled me. Another snapshot of the times, and this would be around about 1973, concerns Bob Cox and John Rawl. Of uptiding fame, and I've already interviewed John on that very topic. <laughs> yes, our little group, led by, I must say, Bob Cox and John Rawl, we sort of opened up Bradwell as a fishing area. Beforehand, it was just a backwater where people went boating, you know. On one occasion, after I'd missed a trip on Providence, the boat we fished on out from Bradwell, Bob Cox told me that on the way home from Bradwell the previous day, he and John Rawl had stopped off at a wimpy bar in Rochford, Essex. After half an hour or so, John had consumed 13 cheeseburgers. He then excused himself after looking at his watch, and he told Bob that he had to go as his mother was expecting him home for dinner. Your early stuff mirrors my own childhood to a certain extent, albeit 300 miles to the south, a lifestyle many kids dabbled at back then, though would probably be alien to most youngsters these days. But from those earliest sketches, plus your time spent working in the gun room and chatting to angling clients, you obviously also made some pretty fundamental advances on the artistic front. I'd been fishing since the age of six, and I'd been painting and drawing fishes in my own fashion, relatively good, relatively well, but all of my work needed a great deal of improvement. And I believe that to some extent, Trevor Housby was the launching platform for that next step up on the ladder. Trevor, almost certainly, his first job as a writer, he had a commission to write a short series of articles for Angler's World magazine, then edited by uh, Len Cut. This would have been around about 1962. Trevor and I have known each other for two or three years at that stage. He was around about 26, and I would be 18-ish. And he'd seen some of my work and was quite taken by it, uh, surprisingly. In those days, I used to use a, a fine mapping pen with Indian ink to do a lot of my illustrations. These for my own benefit, of course. I'd had nothing published up until then, and Trevor invited me to submit some pieces for the editors OK, with a view to me illustrating these articles. I did so, and everything went ahead, and the first work was published in March 1963. One cod and one whiting appeared, with my name in lights, illustrated by Keith Linsell, and uh, I was quite excited by that, and I got paid, I think, one guinea each for those illustrations and it turned out not to be simply for a couple of months or a couple of issues of the magazine, but uh, two to three years we did that, and that we ended up illustrating nearly all of the fishes on the British Sea Fish list. And, of course, while I was doing that, confidence was growing and, and people were talking about my work, and I continually uh, was offering my work to other magazines and newspapers at the time, and that started that particular ball rolling but I, I knew at the time that uh, there was very good competition out there. David Carl Forbes, Bernard Venables, Arthur Smith, etc., 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 and that I, I had to improve with every job I did. 
So I took meticulous care to be as accurate as I could, but still add a flourish to the illustrations. You describe yourself, and I use your words here, as chronic but enthusiastic, improving constantly through the 60s and 70s until such time as improvements became more subtle and stylized. That's right. My early work is very noticeable for, what shall I say, lack of artistic flourish and permanent style, because I was still... Uh, every job that came my way, and of course don't forget you're talking about a chap who's under 20 who's well aware of the shortcomings then of his work, but I knew my work was above the line rather than below it, but I needed to really get some polish on. And anyone who's followed my work will see from the early days, year by year, a tremendous improvement per year. And this is very noticeable if you see the early working Angler's World and various other magazines. And then we go on to Angling Times in 1970, 71, that was the big start with Angling Times, when I started to work with colour and also black and white column breaks in that particular paper. I then illustrated with Angling Times for about 25 years on a freelance basis. And very noticeable, year by year the quality improves. Until, say, the mid to late 1970s, it was, well, getting quite good, shall we say. What I think people really need to grasp here is the importance of artwork back then. Photography was not at the stage it is today, on top of which, art can present a scenario which photography even now would struggle to capture. Yes, indeed. The artist has always got that up his sleeve if he's good enough. What I mean by that is a photographer can take a, even in those days, pretty good colour shots, but a lot of them were photographers, but they didn't have an artist's eye, or indeed, some of them, even a photographer's eye. And a lot of the people who had photographs in the angling world published uh, for angling publications were not proper photographers. And those who had been or were professional photographers had normally specialised in other areas than angling. And it took another 10 years for decent cameras to be easily available and also those people with the skill to use them properly when photographing angling scenes or specifically, as your question speaks of, fishes. And of course, underwater photography was really almost nil. I've got books, as you may have, of underwater photography from those times and it's not very informative whereas an artist could paint a very detailed picture and have the illustration be both attractive and informative and, and those two words haunted me throughout my career because there are a lot of people who, who do a rather staid detailed picture the fish lacks certain movement and it is only attractive to a scientist it is not attractive to an angler although he looks at it and says, oh, yes, very nice indeed. But if you can make the fish move, and this again, I sort of ended up sort of specialising in three-quarter views of the fish coming at you and sort of slightly turning to its left or right with the tail in, hopefully, a lifelike movement, thudding the fish through the water. I mentioned earlier anglers who are artists, or artists who become anglers as having the best concept of illustrating a written book, as opposed to an accurate but boring scientific depiction. Absolutely right. In fact, I use the same benchmark now in my writing, in as much as what I want to read, I try to write. 
and I have this sort of schizoid thing with my own tiny little brain that there is the, uh, the, the the person who composes something and there is the other person looking over his shoulder both of them me correcting and saying no this needs to be a little more lyrical a little more poetic you can get away with it because it's not an instructional piece and I had the same thing in mind with my own artwork I like to paint what I'd like to see other people do, the people that I admire, other angling artists. That's what I was trying to paint myself. Pictures that would please me, and then hopefully, if it pleased me, and I'm my biggest critic, then it would presumably please other viewers, you know. Since those early days of angling publishing, the world has moved on both in what it expects to see and what it gets in terms of photographic illustration. That being the case, where do you see artwork in the modern era, and what now is your place in it? In my early days with Angling Times, the editors used to be anglers, as well as climbing up the publishing ladder within EMAP Publications, which was the mother company, as it were, and they had a number of magazines. But latterly, into the 90s, I got the impression that the editors just used Angling Times well, they were just put in position for experience on another magazine, in quotes, such as Angling Times, and see how well you do with this magazine. And I got the impression also that they weren't dyed-in-the-wool anglers. They may have fished, but they were given the job just as part of their life stepping stone within that publishing organisation. So therefore, you started to get editors who weren't all that bothered. They never looked back over even the close history of their own paper, and you couple that with computers coming in to people's lives generally and into publishing and changing everything. And once they found that they could press a few buttons and get a silly line drawing done by somebody who works for Motorcycle News, this line drawing being of a fish with wavy lines for water behind it, they started to say, well, why on earth are we paying Linsell or anybody else hundreds of pounds to produce artwork where we could have either somebody cheaper because I don't know what good artwork is. This is what's going through their mind. Their judgment started to go, and the effect was that they started to use computerised drawings done by somebody somewhere else in their publishing organisation who wasn't an angler. They would have used as reference my work from the past, because I noticed on several occasions that the angle of the fishes on these silly line drawings was very, very similar to something I had done for Angling Times in the past. Plus the fact they then started to use artists. Well, again, I guess they were from inside the organisation, who may have been an angler interested in angling and followed Angling Times and their illustrations, including mine, in the past. So therefore, a lot of illustrations started to turn up and the fishes look suspiciously like mine simply because they had used my artwork as references and added their own rather sparse, irregular and rather silly backgrounds. Whether it was used to show the way a piece of tackle was used or anything of that nature. But this was the general tenure then in, in the 90s. This thing started to take over. At that stage I, I was still buying all the magazines including the two weeklies, Angling Times and Angler's Mail. And they generally started going to pop, particularly My Love and Joy, which used to be Angling Times. Various projects were broached occasionally, but half-heartedly to me. The last one I did was 94. 
but they had financial backing from ABBA, Tackle, the Swedish fish and tackle firm, to do a series on fishes, uh, centre spreads, which I did and was well paid for. Thank you very much indeed. But I think that's only because they were backed by ABBA that they could afford that. And generally speaking, things were sort of closing down because the design opportunities that computers were then giving them were overtaking generally their need for artwork. Because for artwork, you needed discussion beforehand, maybe a meeting down here all the way from Peterborough to come down to see me, have lunch, etc., etc., agree on a price, then go back. I would do them roughs if need be, then I would submit the artwork, And that's a long period compared with, oh, what have we got on stock or what can we crib? Put it on file on computer. Everything is there. So it was much easier from their point of view to save money and not employ expensive artists. Because I suppose they knew that as their readership, and I'm going, the other part of my mind is arguing with me as I'm saying this, a great percentage of their readership is getting younger and younger. And therefore the old school was falling out and the youngsters probably wouldn't like or notice the quality of good artwork in the paper, Uh, which, judging from responses I've had since from people who were young at that time, would have been wrong. They loved the stuff and they were putting everything on their bedroom walls, you know. So not only have people of our generation had the best of the fishing, certainly at sea, It's equally fair to say that we also saw the best of magazine illustration and had proper writers who could tell a proper story, as opposed to today's writers handing out blow-by-blow instruction sheets. It is, it is. So many of the magazines, you have so-called specialist carp magazines, for example, which just appear to be absolutely full of large bald-headed men with tattoos holding overblown carp. And, you know, you read that it was taken on a boily, it was self-hooked. He was using a £25 trace shop leader. He was using a rod of £3 test curve or 2.75 test curve. And this is supposed to add to the glory of the capture. To me, it diminishes it. I once belonged to a carp syndicate not far from where I lived, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful if you could find a spot on your own and fish under a willow tree and you'd see these great big carp swimming by you. But on the opposite bank, you would hear voices. This open straight bank opposite, all the bivvies would be there and you'd see somebody arrive, put his bivvy up, get all the gear ready, make a couple of casts with two rods, put them on the buzzer bars and sit down for five minutes and then he'd go and talk to his mate, which was 50 yards along the bank and you'd hear them talking until such time as the man just mentioned would have a run. He would be using his extra loud bite indicators, turned up to full blast. These things would scream out across the lake, the sound of them would scream out across the lake. He would then spend another 50 or so seconds finishing off the subject matter of his discussion with his colleague before running at great speed and and great excitement back to one of his rods where he would find the spool almost empty but still with the fish neatly hooked on the end through no fault of the anglers. And all of that was really putting me off. And just before I stopped by an angler's mail... They used to have several pages of these from all over the country, and it was one of their main features. A man kneeling down, holding a big fat fish, looking over the dorsal fin of a bemused carp, who probably had a name and was probably going to be caught 
and fished for by its name forever and a day until it gave up the ghost. I think both anger and fish would pretty soon lose the will to live under those circumstances. Indeed. Lately, my fishing, in, in my later years as it were, and I'm 70 at the time of this recording, is that I fish automatically. Like a lot of the artwork I do, not the writing, the writing makes me scratch my head, although I eventually get there. But the work, because of my experience, comes a lot easier to me now, and I'm free not to have to tackle the basic parts of a picture because they come automatically. I'm also free. I've still got a little bit experimental time near the finish of a picture to be free and light and to do exactly what I want and invent various things pertaining to a particular picture. And it's the same with angling. After you've got a few years under your belt, you do all the hard stuff in a very easy way because you've been there before. You've trodden those steps for 50 years or so and you know what you're doing. And again, like me painting a picture, there is still room, not necessarily world-shattering events, but there's still room to be innovative, even if it's on one trip in one particular swim. If, with your knowledge, you can try something, a slightly different fishing, it enables you to say, right, if I do so-and-so, up to now, I haven't had much luck today. But if I do so-and-so, the fish I've been watching cruising past my bait may be attracted to my surface bait if I do this or that. And that is still the little bit of freedom on top of a bulk of experience that enables somebody of a decent age to survive properly, I suppose, mentally when they're talking about fishing or indeed painting. When people look back over the past, they often regard the quality of the fishing to have been better than it is today particularly in wild fish situations, and I suspect that you are no different in that regard. Well, from my early days, and perhaps it's unfair to talk about the trips I went with from parties from various magazines and papers, because the waters we visited with them uh, were top-quality waters. They had access to various places, which I would normally not have. From my point of view, as it were, uh, an ordinary private angler before I really started contributing to various magazines, it was hit and miss. There were some good waters where you began to learn what the water itself told you by observing. And uh, mind you, it takes, in my case anyway, a good number of years to get the feel of what's going on. Now, there were some waters which I had access to gradually in, in the early 60s, which were good waters. So I, I don't think there's much in it. I think the style and the fashion is what has changed. Today, the access to easy fishing, I wouldn't call it good fishing. Easy fishing is, um, what shall I say? The readers of the popular angling press is to have very little patience and to fish easy and fish quickly. These are the people who tend to wear bright colours and talk a lot and visit holes in the ground which are newly stocked, normally with carp and that sort of popular species. On the other hand, eventually after a few years, because other species are generally ignored, you can get superb heads of a very large perch and that sort of thing living as a population quite separate from what anglers are catching because the, the methods they're using for carp, for example, do not cross over onto perch fishing. 
generally I think the waters on the outside of those commercial holes in the ground I get the impression that they are the same as ever they were 30 or 40 years ago in the meantime in the middle of that particular period we've had bad and silly pollution but to a large extent that has been if not cured everyone's more aware of pollution and conservation of wildlife etc etc and it's only when uh, various river boards make silly mistakes or rather the the environment agency makes silly mistakes as they have done uh, locally to myself here in Essex over the past several years with various sewerage facilities it's only when fish kill occurs to a large extent that's the freshwater aspect done but what about the saltwater scene sea fishing uh, i get the impression that into and up to the the 70s when we went out to catch cod we caught them when we went out to catch bass we caught them and all the other species we tended to catch them unless we got the tide wrong and we we found ourselves sitting on the wrong side of a sandbar or something or, or the anchor was dragging etc etc and you get pulled out of position I remember sometime in the 1970s I used to fish out from the Blackwater on the boats and I remember the herring ban coming down in the North Sea and that was a good thing there was a lot of complaints obviously from the herring fishermen at the time but the herring came back after several years and uh, as I understand it now we we got a good head of herring was there an embargo on cod in some way or the other on cod fishing in the North Sea? I remember the stock sort of starting to dwindle late 80s, 90s. The rumours I, I was hearing from various people, it, it really wasn't worth, uh, and the sales of sea fishing tackle were dropping, and it wasn't really worth going out locally anyway because uh, there was nothing there. The commercial boys had had the lot, and they continued to come back and have the lot until they went out and caught nothing. Then they have to find new fishing grounds. Then they have to justifiably in some cases blame the Spaniards for walking all over their territory. That's because everyone was being greedy. You cannot keep on improving and modifying trawlers to catch more and more fish and expect the fish to, <laughs> to still be there when you keep on killing them. I recently recorded an interview with Dr Ruth Thurston who did some research into commercial fishing pressure and found that since the introduction of the otter trawl in the early 1800s Despite modern advances in technology, electronics and engine power, it now takes 17 times more effort for the same result than it did back then. Yeah. I seem to remember reading a similar fact, but it was dressed up differently. The amount of effort made these days compared with the much slower fishing methods. But yes, I mean, they had the, uh, the Industrial Revolution to contend with, where the population mostly, including my forebears, left the countryside because of the degradation of living at the time in agriculture and almost the greater part of the population moved to the towns to get work and therefore you had these great conurbations and great concentrations of people all requiring food at once and, and because most big towns had been or are including London as it were on rivers then fish and, and the transport of fish and, and the supply of fish and the need for the same increased by great degrees. As both an artist and an angler, the people you encountered came from the entire spectrum of the fishing world, as presumably with a number of invitations to fish. A nice blend then of salt water and fresh. But as an angler yourself left to your own devices, 
where does your particular interest lie? What turns me off, generally speaking, is other people, if I can put that like that. I like fishing on my own or with one other deep-dyed, knowledgeable companion who knows the way I think and I know the way that they think. Therefore, we sort of meld together. We can fish yards and yards away from each other but know what each other is doing because we know their habits I know that he's going to be quiet and if he's going to tell me anything about the fish in front of him I will find him sort of creeping up rather quietly and not crunching along or calling out loudly to me that such and such is happening in front of him where he is and he knows that I will do exactly the same I will creep up like an Indian in the night to him and uh, whisper in his ear that uh, such and such has just happened or I've just seen a mink or that sort of thing I like to be quiet, I like to see everything that's going on around me you know, wildlife i like to know where i am and what's happening in that respect and i get endless enjoyment watching simple things like birds fly and how they fly and what they're doing i get to learn attitudes of nature the, the behavior of certain animals and birds around me and of course this goes directly to one of my greatest loves in angling and that is surface fishing because on a good day one of my favourite swims in my club lake is facing south across a bay and that means that the sun although it's in my eyes and that's a bit of a pest particularly in the afternoons in the summer it lights up everything just below the surface in front of me and I can read what fish are where all the time and I, I endless endless entertainment particularly with surface baits and a variety of different types of bread. And um, you can see the fish thinking as they approach a bait, and you can see some of them are, are real characters. I've hooked a fish under my rod tip, and sometimes it's in, in the pea green water in the high of summer where there's a, a lot of algae in the water and you can't see more than a couple of inches below the surface, if that. You whack into a fish and you don't know what the weight is, so you've got to be very careful if you're near the bank with some snags. And this particular fish, I controlled it from snags in front of me. It then shot out to my left into open water towards a sandbank. Now, this particular sandbank, around its edges are growing small willows. So you've got this mini forest fringing this sandbank. And I was putting full pressure on this fish really leaning over on it and it was still taking line and going at a hell of a lick and I managed to stop it I guess about 70 feet away and because I'd lent into this fish so much with the old finger on the spool and the, the rod bent double as it were it stopped and it stopped by a few of his mates who were also swimming around in the shade of these mini willows and it stopped dead, and I could see it with the light behind it. And it was as if the way the, a fighting Spanish bull paused the ground. It was almost as if that's what he was doing. Although, I, <laughs> obviously, they haven't got hooves, they haven't got horns. But his whole attitude was of slow revival and beginning to rev up again. And I could see it in the actions of that particular fish. I knew what that damn fish was going to do. And after a little rest, he suddenly took off again in the same direction. He must have been, well, anything from high teens to mid-twenties, maybe bigger, I don't know. And he just thumped off, heading south, and continued to do so. Unfortunately, the line did not continue to do so, and I'd lost him.
but the attitude of this fish, he was almost pouring the ground. If you could imagine such a thing. I watched him and he was well lit in the sunshine. Back in the 1960s, artwork was a way of getting colour to the masses. But more recently, that has most certainly changed. So what currently is the value of artwork? Where does it sit in today's great scheme of things? And what makes your interpretation different to that of your competitors? My goodness, um, as I've told you before, I'm a modest sort of chap. There are a lot of other artists out there that I respect. Did you say different or better? Different. Oh, that's the good get-out. Artists have different styles, and the style of artwork, the actual look and the feel of an individual artist's work, comes about over a number of years and is influenced by a number of things. Sometimes, as in my case, I think almost certainly with other artists, they're influenced by artists whose work they love and appreciate, and again, in my case, from my childhood, certain artists who illustrated comics that I took, and you grow up with that flavour of quality of illustration, and certainly my generation was uh, well served with um, very high quality artwork in the comics and, and the papers and the boys' comics that uh, we used to have. My artwork changed year after year when I first started to be published, because being self-taught I had to improve my work in order to stand up against the competition at the time. I was against Reg Cook, on a small scale, he, he didn't get published very much. David Carl Forbes, um, the Bernard Venables, let's see, who else? Later Ted Andrews, but he was more of a cartoonist than a serious uh, illustrator. Uh, who else? I hope I'm not insulting anybody by leaving them out. But of course now, these days, we have a plethora of superb producers of artwork. There's Morris Pleasure, there's David Miller, Chris Turnbull, I've met the man once or twice. I've never had a chance to have a deep conversation with him. But from what I hear, he tends to look at life and nature and artwork in a similar vein to myself. He's got his feet not on the ground, but in the water like myself, as it were. And he fills it from the ground up. You know, the, the old heart throbs when you go out where there's greenery and walking under trees and, and around water. Or indeed on the coast where you see uh, a whole load of black geese coming in in the evening or an arrowhead of herring gulls going quietly over on a winter sky. And it, it's fabulous, you know. Do you see yourself as having a particular presentational style that sets your work apart from everybody else? Not necessarily better, but different. Again, it's not a matter of preference. It's the nature of the subject that I was asked to illustrate when I first started being detailed drawings of fish. I was sort of lumbered with that, and because a detailed drawing of a fish for identification purposes means putting the right number of scales in, uh, the right number of spines, and the right number of branch rays on fins, etc., 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 you tend to develop a very detailed style, and I'm stuck with that. A lot of my artwork is not cost-effective to me. It's very cost-effective to the publishers and the buyers of my pictures, but I tend to spend far more time on a picture than the amount of money uh, that I'm getting for it. If I tried to charge a proper rate per hour <laughs> on most of my pictures to the client, I wouldn't have many clients because the hours I put in are just too many. But this is where first printing rights only and my reuse at some future date comes in very handy. 
is the only thing really that the artists have to protect themselves in that sort of situation. So somebody who's a bit of a lunatic with detail like myself can really go to town, produce a piece of work that hopefully will knock people's socks off when they see it. You take a hit financially on the first, maybe the first publication, unless it's something really special, but you can always use it in the future to illustrate other books for other authors or sell this, that and the other elsewhere and, and get paid again for it. But unfortunately, as you know only too well, that isn't always the case. The jacket artwork for Fred Buller's Doomsday Book of Mammoth Pike, for example, somehow managed to go astray. That is absolutely true. There was a period where I, I had started to photograph all of my work, but strangely and very weirdly, somehow I didn't photograph that cover artwork before it left my hands, expecting to get it back. And, uh... That's right. I think Hutchinson's were taken over by another publisher, whose name escapes me currently, and the offices were cleared out, and apparently Hutchinson's did contact me to say that, you know, I can have my work back if I'd like to come up and get it or something, but I can't remember any um, correspondence to do with that. And when I spoke to the art editor who I dealt with later on, uh, he said, oh dear, you know, it was thrown out, the artwork for... Fred Buller's Mammoth Pike had been disposed of. Now, I hope somewhere someone has got that in their greasy mitts and um, they might be hiding it because I, I put one or two feelers out to try to get some sort of comeback if anybody knows where, if anyone's got that picture. But that disappeared, so I, I, uh, that, I was on a loser there. I have still got, though, the coloured roughs I did for the book, which are rather fascinating when I discovered that I'd, I still had such things. Ironically, there was an item on the news early today about a horde of lost artwork plundered by the Nazis having turned up again. So maybe there is still hope for yours. Well, I, I mean, my, my situation is, is a little less fraught <laughs> than the history to do with those paintings. And um, yes, yes, it would be nice, yes. It's not just the monetary value of the thing, it's one of my children. Every time I do a picture, you've created something, and you're proud of it, and you dream, and you look at it, and you think, my God, I'm a clever son. I mean, that's not boasting, by the way. You've accomplished something because you've slogged away, and you've cured small problems that came up, and you've created the whole thing, and all, all the sort of business. And then you realise that somebody's coming the day after tomorrow with money in his fist, and he's going to take it away. He's going to hang it on his wall and you'll never see it again. It is a peculiar feeling that I've never got used to. I'm going to put you on the spot now. Which out of all your angling pieces of artwork is closest to your heart and why? That's a bit difficult to answer on the spur of the moment. Well, all I can say is that the work I'm doing at present, non-commissioned stuff, due to the financial vagaries that I mentioned just now. Non-commissioned work is stuff that I, I get an idea, I do a, a little pencil sketch, and then I do another little pencil sketch of something else. And I, I've got whole reams of sketches of fish in action and doing this and different species and various things. And then they go into a drawer, and then I continue with my life. And then I may be clearing something out, and I find all these sketches again. And I say to myself, ah, right. 
to save me starting from scratch again on, on a picture, I, I need to do a picture or a series of pictures, which is the case, and they've all got to have a certain thing going for them, blah, 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 the same size and fully detailed. I choose a sketch from the past, and I maybe sometimes almost redraw it, but keep the gist of that particular sketch. And the sketch eventually turns into a picture which is returned to my artwork drawer over a series of months, taken out, worked on, returned again, worked on, returned again. Those pictures then become fully detailed as I would like them and fully finished, not done under pressure of time or money. And lately, over the past several years, I've got one or two of these and they are... They are the ones that I've lavished parts of my life on. There have been, and I've, I've got one or two clients at the moment who can afford to pay the right money. And I get the same satisfaction now because I can relax, do excellent work over a longish period of time. They're not necessarily for publication. These, these are for wall hangers. These are commissions for hanging pictures in people's homes. And I get great satisfaction on having the luxury of time. They're not all fish either. They're various types of portraits, uh, uh, allegorical, some of them, the, the one, I'm, one in particular I'm working on currently. If I can put the time that I want and require and need after discussing and doing roughs with the commissioner, with the client he's then fully satisfied and happy with what I'm going to do, that gives me the greatest satisfaction. Most of my work, looking back at it, I've been working hammer and tongs for the last 50, 50 years, I suppose, and it's been crash-bang-wallop. The best work I can do in the time allowed to have it done. Mostly, I work over time as it were on most of the stuff therefore the client and the world whoever is having it when i say the world i don't mean that facetiously i mean the viewing public in time they are not going to be sold short by me not putting enough time into it because i i tend to see to it that i put more than enough time in to produce a quality piece my aim in all cases is to make somebody stare silently for some seconds at least before they say, my God, that's damn good, Keith. And that is the reaction I want, and that's the reaction I, I sort of work for all the time, because anything else um, <laughs> hits my ego, and I, I need my ego to be uh, rather light and buoyant most of the time in order to um, continue being a creative person. I know it sounds a bit precious, but uh, we do need it when we're working quietly into the early hours of the morning for months on end, uh, trying to produce a picture or a series of pictures. Or indeed when you're writing, you know, uh, creative writing. So where then does all the aforementioned place Keith Linsell in late 2014? Fairly well satisfied so far with his life of artwork, and so far what he's learned. I touched on ego and building up of the inner self creatively to be able to say to somebody who comes along with a vague idea about a picture, you've then got to take them metaphorically by the hand. I mean, I have clients calling on me and they come in and they've got a vague idea about something. They've got this picture, but it's a one-dimensional part 
of something they've got in their head. They tell me what it is, and I say, right, OK. It could be an important caricature for a retirement for somebody or a large caricature for somebody's birthday. I then have to make suggestions to them and ask them questions and get literally a full picture of the person who's going to be caricatured. This is We're talking about colour here. We're talking about a rather sophisticated picture full of props, thick and thin line drawings with colour wash or solid colour, etc., etc., or anything along those lines, anything that... uh, needs to be creative i've learned a hell of a lot about people and the ability on my part to create i mean at the beginning of things you know how to feel but you don't know how properly and professionally and slickly to put that into a piece of artwork you've got to turn the emotions into detail and you then get to end up with a satisfactory piece of artwork. I mean, if it was a book on diagrams for, for an angling book or something like that, that's sort of dead meat, as long as you do a good, accurate job and present it. Uh, you, you add a little bit of artistry in not just plain line drawing, but a little bit of artistry in various curves used and various techniques. You do not need much imagination to do that. But it's the learning all the time, as with any other profession, any other hobby indeed, or any other pastime. If that time consumption is to be at all productive, you need depth. You need not one or two dimensions, you need three, four or five dimensions in your head about the uh, presentation, the detail, the colour, etc., So where that leaves me at my great age at the moment is relatively satisfied. Lots of losses, lots of gains over the period of my life. But um, on the whole, I've I've always been optimistic and I remain so. And what started me off ticking when I was at school, when I started fishing, when I started drawing, when I started painting, when I started contributing to magazines, etc., etc., that ticking bomb is still as strong as ever. That machinery that gets me up in the morning, this need to paint and draw and create and uh, keep on observing and learning all the time. Learning is the main thing. I shall never be a big head because I always need to learn. And uh, here endeth the first lesson. Lesson being the appropriate word, as anyone listening to this cannot fail to appreciate. A journey back to a now neglected past, despite the fact that it's within our adult lifetime. My thanks then to Keith Lynn Sell for taking us back an angling generation in time.